Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep dive into the academic research and behavioural science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behaviour. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World. In today's episode, we'll be talking with behavioural and environmental psychologist, Dr. Reuven Sussman. Reuven leads the Behaviour and Health Program at AEEE, which stands for the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. And he conducts research and advocates for energy efficiency in buildings and transportation, of which make up the lion's share of carbon emissions. Dr. Sussman is also an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria in British Columbia and currently sits on the editorial board of the Journal of Environmental Psychology and the Journal of Social Psychology. We're going to be diving into a recent paper he authored titled Context and Meaningfulness in Energy Efficiency Labeling for Real Estate Listings, which explores the real nitty-gritty of how to get home energy labels to work and exactly how to design them. We discuss the psychological foundations of how people respond to these labels, the kind of policy that is required to get them going, and how they can best be utilised to influence the real estate market to decarbonise buildings and drive greener choices. We also talk about another important concept called framing, which is a technique that could be used to help sell the often trickier and more demanding energy efficiency upgrades to homeowners. I was so excited to finally get a chance to talk to Reuven because I've been trying to get him on the show for a while. And I love this conversation about the disclosure of energy information about households so much because it comes down to these core fundamentals of what is required to drive change. And that number one is the feedback loop of data. This is the core mechanism of how all species evolve right since we were in the primordial soup. So fast forward a couple of million years, here we are living in these houses. We need to know the feedback of the energy and the carbon emissions and the environmental impact of our houses in order for us to respond to that data and to make a change. That's the first principle. But even if we have the data, that data needs to be disclosed to people. That's the next layer. It needs to be shown. And that's where this government layer of mandatory disclosure or pushing the real estate or the building industry to show this data to people so they can actually respond to this feedback and they can actually, of their own accord, make a greener choice. And then we get the third layer, which is really what pulls on people psychologically, is that once we have this data, we have it disclosed so everybody can see it, then people can compare house against house, block against block, business against business. In this case with real estate listings, you're looking at the data comparing house against house. The human brain makes decisions through comparison. We have to be able to see our data in context. And this is why the paper is titled Context of Real Estate Listings in the context of all of the other homes around it. We need to be able to see that data in comparison. And when you put these three layers together, the feedback of the data, the disclosure to make sure all the data is out there for everyone to see, and then that comparison, you've got the three layers, the magical trifecta, that is the way that humans make decisions. And once you've got those three layers on, 
then you can start adding more of the fun design and gamification like colors, the traffic light system, red is bad, green is good, smiley faces that reward the good players, frowny faces for the bad players. You can put people in groups, you can track progress, you can add that fun gamified layer on top of these three fundamentals. And I would just love to see better quality real-time feedback loops of carbon emissions from buildings, universally applied mandatory disclosure from the government, making this carbon emission data out there so we can all see it. And then, of course, having labels, however they turn out to be designed, for all types of buildings, residential, apartments, commercial, education, all of it. And when you got all that stuff in place, that's when we can really go to town with all the really fun gamification stuff that we love to talk about in this podcast. But like all good gamification and behavior design, it rests on primary fundamental principles and theories about what drives people to change. We're not just adding points and stars and smiley faces on just random cool ideas. It all rides on the back of the primary principles that govern how human beings make decisions and how we evolve. There's a lot of big juicy concepts in this conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. I was definitely delighted to have the opportunity to finally talk to Dr. Reuven Sussman. I hope you enjoy taking this super nitty-gritty dive into the behavioral science and the psychology of energy real estate listings and eco-labels in general. Now let's dive into the conversation. Awesome, Reuven. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, the people who listen to this podcast, we are all sustainability managers, energy efficiency consultants, people who are deeply invested, passionate about sustainability, and it's our job. It's our profession to make change. But yet, in our movement, you've probably noticed this yourself, hardly anybody has heard of environmental psychology. Why is this a problem? Why is this a problem? As psychologists, let me start with the solution. Everybody wants to change behavior, whether it's enacting a law or implementing a tax credit or a rebate program or something like that. We're all trying to get folks to act more sustainably, which is the key. Humans cause the problem. Humans can be the solution to the problem. What I think is not understood is that as psychologists, we spent our entire careers just looking at how to change behavior. We're uniquely qualified for that particular task. And unfortunately... Most psychologists are sort of isolated in their ivory towers, universities, academia. And most people who do applied work are isolated in their government buildings and their advertising agencies. And they don't really talk to one another. And I think that there's a real missed opportunity from cross-pollination and learning from each other. Something that I I try to do in many aspects of my career and, and the work that I do at ACCEE. Yeah, I find that I studied environmental engineering and used to be a green building engineer. And I find most of the people who are professionally employed in sustainability roles have come from an engineering or a environmental science background. And we are trained to see the world mechanistically that you have this problem, there's this many parts per million pollution in the air, and then we need this technical, practical solution to happen And if we just tell everybody that there's a problem and that this should happen, it's just perfectly logical that we should just do it without realizing that the way to get there, the way to get all of these humans to make the many complex decisions and changes is we have to convince, people have to be convinced, and that it's a really elaborate, big and complex world to understand the psychology of how to influence people. 
And coming from the, the building engineering background, we don't even get a shred of this. There is nothing. When I studied 20 years ago in the environmental engineering, civil engineering, electrical engineering, about the psychology of influence, like people don't even know that it's a, that it is even a, a thing unless they've really, like you said, cross-pollinated, really gone quite far out of their traditional training to try to realize that it, there actually is this whole discipline, that it actually exists. I was like 10 years out of college before, and really working in sustainability, before I even heard the term behavioral science. I could even cross my mind that it was even a discipline. I'll go one, yeah, and I'll go one step further. Many engineers that I know working on this problem just try to engineer humans out of the problem as if the solution is, let's, if people aren't turning off the lights, let's create sensors that automatically turn off the lights. If people aren't properly turning off their thermostat when they leave the house, let's make it automatic. Somebody has to buy those thermostats and install those light switches. And there's really, and after that, not take off the energy-saving features that make it less convenient. And so these humans are will never be factored out of the equation. And I think that's a fundamental issue that a lot of people working in technology, engineers and whatnot, fail to address. Yeah, and also in this discussion, which I'll ask you about in a bit about between individual change versus systems change, which is something I get asked of a lot, like why do you look at individual psychology when you need to look at the system? It's that with these big complex problems, you literally cannot pare them down into a completely system-wide problem. There is always, even if you try to get every single part of the system, every policy you can do, every technology you can do, there's always a bit left over well, theoretically, there would be some left over that does require individual human influence. So even with all of the engineers, you're still going to be asking things of people that you are just not going to be able to do with policy and technology alone. But that's like a huge topic in itself. Let's jump into this paper that I have been highlighting last night and this morning called Context and Meaningfulness in Energy Efficiency Labeling for real estate listings. What was the big aha finding from this paper? Okay, I'm going to try to boil it down here. First, if you put energy information in front of people when they're about to make a real estate decision, it will affect their decisions. We've seen that from a randomized control trial on a virtual fake website. Second, the type of labels that seem to work best are the ones that give what I would call context information. We'll get into, I don't know if you want to get into this later, but Basically, a label is most effective if people can immediately and very easily compare that label to alternatives. You're creating a context where the alternatives look better than what you have, so you're motivated to get more efficient homes. And the last one, which I think is kind of related, is that if you created a program where only the most efficient homes get labeled, then you might not see as strong results because... So in a program where it's a voluntary labeling program, for example, only the most efficient homes usually get labeled. That doesn't really change behavior as much as you'd like. And so ultimately, the goal is a, a mandatory program where everything gets labeled. So those are like the three most important things I thought. Yeah, I think this opens up a super interesting issue, which is really understanding what mandatory disclosure is versus these voluntary eco-labels. And I find most people haven't really thought about this and they haven't really like distilled what these two differences are in their mind, that when you have these voluntary labels, you're basically just giving like a little trophy to all of the good players, and it's not 
providing a score or any kind of information about the bad players. And it's like the bad players are the ones that you really want to lift up the most. And the mandatory disclosure really requires the government. You can't do it without the government. Can you talk a little bit about what mandatory disclosure is in the context of buildings? One of my first podcasts I interviewed was with Professor, what's his name, Arkon Fung from Harvard University, who writes a book called Disclosure. Do you know of him or his work? I'm not familiar with it. Well, he has a book called Disclosure. He looks at disclosure across all sorts of industries, not just buildings. But can you talk a little bit more about the theory of mandatory disclosure? And I'd love to know where it is at in America. I have a vision for the future of how I'd like to see buildings where every single building had a a little digital screen or something on the front of it that showed it what its carbon impact was. And it was all color-coded. And it was on every single building, commercial and residential, just the same way you've got nutritional labels on food or the way you have an EPA sticker on a car. How close are we to that reality in the United States? Great question. In Europe, actually, they have a pretty robust labeling program where buildings have to have the label, just as you've described, in fact, on the building itself. You have to have it. You have to disclose it. And what's important is that not just on the building itself, because most people, let's face it, these days, they get their information from the internet long before they visit the building itself. That label needs to be anywhere people are getting their information at that initial point of searching. And the U.S. is definitely behind at least Europe and probably other parts of the world as well. There are a smattering of disclosure policies in different areas. Probably the best example is in Portland, Oregon, where you have to have a disclosure at time of listing and it has to be part of the description of the home that's going on sale. Other places like Berkeley have disclosure policies. I think there's something like 14 jurisdictions across the United States that have policies, but they are quite varied. Some of them are just, you have to provide the information if the rent, if the buyer wants it just before they move in. Some of them are, you have to post it at a time of listing. Those are very rare. And so I think where we need to get to is a place where the policies are labeling the building, when people are doing the searches, so in those search results, so that they can have the impact at the start of the search. We know that matters to homeowners and now renters as well. And so I think that's where we need to get to, but we're not there yet. What's it going to take to have a, uh, I was going to say global, but what I mean is universal energy disclosure policy for all types of properties. Is that something that the the A triple Sorry, do I say the ACEEE? ACEEE. is working on? So ACEEE focuses its efforts mainly on America, as the name might imply. And it's tricky in the U.S., and this is somewhat why it's tricky around the world. As you may be aware, the U.S. Is, gives a lot of control of, over operations to local and especially state-level governments. The federal government does a lot less than, for example, where I'm from in Canada, where there's a lot more sort of national policies. With every jurisdiction having its own control and that being a fundamental part of the way the U.S. is constructed, it really means that each location has to be incentivized and has to want to do it. What we're looking at is what motivates these different governments and different governing bodies around the United States, because there are some that don't care about environmental sustainability, for example. It might be motivated by comfort or health or reducing energy bills. That's a main one. I mean, there's just different ways of doing it. What's tricky also is that regulating the websites seems to be more difficult than putting regulations on the person selling the home. And so that's another lever that gets pulled as opposed to the websites where 
you might want the websites to display the information more prominently. There's a lot of difficult things to navigate here before we get the policy changed everywhere in a way that's really effective. Yeah, and that really made me think oh. that... Oh, sorry, go on. There was just one more thing I wanted to say, which was I just badmouthed voluntary programs, but voluntary programs are really important because they're a gateway. They're very palatable. And I was actually, I tested this voluntary scenario because I was really hoping that those voluntary labels would be effective at changing behavior because it's so much easier to implement a program like that. But we saw that it didn't statistically significant, move the needle a little bit, but not in a statistically significant way. But that said, they're still a very important gateway. And I think if we can get jurisdictions just adopting a voluntary labeling approach to start, it helps get the infrastructure into place. It helps socialize that behavior and that requirement and eventually might allow us to get to a place where it can be made mandatory. Yeah, I think that's a really cool way to think of it, that the voluntary eco-labels or green building labels are a stepping stone to the mandatory labels. I used to be on the board of the Australian eco-label And I really got to see inside, like, the workings of it. And then I ended up actually working as a consultant to them to just help set up their, like, internal systems. And I really got to see the, just the systemic or sort of ultimate design problems in a voluntary label that you have to, you've got this terrible conflict of interest going on that you have to really promote the label and to get the label more widely understood or adopted, that naturally forces you to want to dilute the integrity of the label, because the more you dilute it, the more you'll be able to get it out there. And so there's that constant sort of pressure on wanting to dilute it, and then also increase its brand awareness, and then it's all marketing, and it all just sort of becomes like a bit of a a, a disaster in terms of trying to run something operationally. But, and then when I think about, when I used to work uh, uh, as yeah. the, as a green doing, I used to do like the Green Star lead certifications for commercial buildings, like that's really where the thinking was at 20 or 25 years ago, because everybody was just, the Green Building Council just started or was invented only a bit over 20 years ago. And you've got a whole bunch of architects and building engineers trying to think about how do we make the buildings a bit better? Coming up with that voluntary type of label was kind of like all we knew back then. But I feel like now, 20 years later, that this voluntary type of labeling has been put in place a lot. There's been a lot more experience of building buildings and then seeing that they don't necessarily operate as green as perhaps you designed them to be, that it was really sort of like a test bed or like a sand pit to move to a more robust disclosure system that can be enacted across all of the existing buildings. And this is the the really tricky thing, I think, with buildings is that the big impact is in the existing buildings, right? Not so much the new buildings. Where are you at with a sorry, A spill E, with looking at how do you nudge all of the existing building stock versus the Green Building Council, which is really in the new building space? Okay, it's that is a tricky question. First of all, new buildings, very important as well. It's like, first, let's stop the bleeding, then let's heal, heal the wound. And it's very difficult. I have to say, my expertise is on the behavioral science side. The policy side, we have a whole other department that deals, <laughs> not department, but the whole rest of the organization is about policy. And I would say that Motivating existing building owners to upgrade is the hardest not to crack. And what has been, like to the credit of the Biden administration, passing the infrastructure, sorry, Inflation Reduction Act, IRA bill, that's gone a long way towards targeting existing buildings and really making significant upgrades. We're going to see one major barrier being 
reduced and in some cases removed for people, which is financial. Major reason people don't do these upgrades is they can't afford the upfront costs. Now we're going to see some major injections of cash to help that happen. And I think that as much as I think behavioral science is an important solution, these kinds of policy-wide, like large-scale incentives are really what's needed for big, important behaviors to change. I'd like to see more of that kind of thing with behavioral science to support and maximize them, to make sure that these programs get the uptake they need and are used in the most impactful way they can be. Yeah, and let's jump into more of the behavioral science nitty-gritty, which is really what the podcast is all about, trying to sort of unravel this complexity and, and help out all our sustainability folks out there to understand what it means. Your study jumps into this term called a heuristic, also referencing an anchoring heuristic and an availability heuristic. What does all this mean when we're just talking about putting energy labels on buildings? Okay, great questions. I love this kind of stuff. A heuristic, a rule of thumb that you use, usually unconsciously, to make a decision. And one thing that I like to focus on in that paper is the importance of context. That when you make a judgment about any kind of object or event or person or anything, you're mentally comparing that object to another object that's similar. And based on your comparison, you're making a value judgment. Now, if you can change what people are comparing to, then you can change their value judgment. And let's talk about the anchoring heuristic. The anchoring heuristic suggests that when you present an example object, that will be in people's awareness when they're making a, a value judgment. So particular when it comes to numbers, if you say, okay, you want people to make a judgment of how much energy is in this context, for example, in the buildings, building energy label, you say to somebody, okay, the energy costs for this building are going to be 100 bucks a month. Is that a lot or is that a little? If you say energy costs for this building are going to be 100 bucks a month, but they could be as low as $88 a month, then you think, okay, is this a lot or is this a little? It seems like a lot. If you say, on the other hand, $100 a month, but the highest one is $200 a month, you're like, okay, this is great. So you're making a value judgment based on the context. And a lot of what we're doing in this labels is changing the context to change the value judgment. And that's why we noticed, for example, that when we present just the dollar value, it's not as effective as I thought it would be because dollars seem to really matter to people. When we presented the energy score, it was pretty effective because we put an energy score out of a maximum possible energy score. Or an even better, a energy score along a continuum of possible energy scores. And so people were able to make the comparison, see that it was a good or bad uh, building and make a decision accordingly based on the information. So the anchoring heuristic is basically giving somebody an initial piece of information that they then unconsciously use to make comparison judgments. Uh, The availability heuristic is another one. Availability heuristic is just that whatever is currently salient in your mind that you can draw from most easily is what's going to affect you. So when you think of an example that's really obvious and, you, and you're able to draw from it right away, then you'll you'll both you'll make a judgment ba- against that thing that you recently draw, drew to your attention. So in these kind of work together, in that we bring somebody's attention the importance of energy efficiency by making it large, making the label large on the on the ad, and we mention what the maximum possible is, and then people are bringing that to attention when they're making these judgments. On the flip side. We look at voluntary labels and we see that the information is not available in all the buildings that you're seeing. They're only available on a few. And so you're not you're even less able to make a comparison. Your judgment of what's 
good or bad is even harder to make. And so we found in this study that when people are seeing the context information, makes that decision on picking a more efficient building much easier. Yeah, and I'm glad that you wrapped it up with the voluntary versus the disclosure because I thought we didn't perhaps quite stitch together how this essential finding is just completely relies on and is dependent on every single building has to have their score because you can't trigger that sense of comparison or that sense of context to see where is my building in comparison to all of the others, not just three eco-labeled ones over here, unless you've got the government helping you make sure every single building is out there because we fundamentally make decisions through comparing. And I thought it was so interesting reading the study showing that if you just label like a scattering of buildings and give them like a good score, like it doesn't really work very well or almost, what do we say? It's not statistically significant, the result it shows. That's right. Yeah. And I think that gets to a heart of an issue that's larger in behavioral science that we don't want in the real world, utilities, governments, they don't want to make people feel bad. You're kind of hamstrung. But behavioral science to some degree does nudge people to this negative feeling drives behavior change. So I think it's really hard to strike that balance in reality. Yeah, one of our um, recent guests studied the guilt versus pride feedback for people. And it was found that when you tell people basically you're doing worse than 85% of everybody else, that was like a very strong driver. And she basically said that the same thing or in a slightly different way that if you just tell people, hey, you're doing really green, like good job. They just kind of like stay in the same emotional place. But if you tell somebody that they're doing quite badly, that creates, it sort of seeds in them a negative emotion and then they want to get rid of that negative emotion so they can come sort of back up to the baseline. And I thought that was a really cool way of explaining her kind of theory of causality of why some of these, this negative feedback or this negative labeling can have the, a strong behavioral effect. Yes. When the rubber hits the road though, is a program like that is very unlikely to be implemented by like utilities. For example, you look at home energy reports. This is a program that utilities across the US and around the world have implemented. Basically, you get a, a report, it's different than your bill, but it says similar information with one important addition. It compares your energy use to 100 similar others. And in the original behavioral science study that demonstrated that this changes people's behavior, they would put an unhappy face if you were doing worse, and they would put a happy face if you were doing better. Because if you're doing better than average, then sometimes you actually regress to the mean and you start doing worse, so they wanted to prevent that. But importantly, when it went to the utilities world, they removed the, the unhappy face condition. They're like, people do not want to feel badly about this. We're just putting like a neutral face or and a happy face. They were able to make that switch, and a lot of the utilities actually use this program not for energy savings, but for customer satisfaction reasons. People like getting the reports. Now, if it wasn't a customer satisfaction argument, I can tell you these utilities would pull that program. They do not want to make their, pro their customers unhappy. So this is a very important line that we have to walk. And it's something that folks in the academic world are very important because they delineate these important theories that we use in practice. But in the applied world, things work a little bit differently and you can't always implement the program you want. Yeah. It's something that's come up a few times. Yeah, yeah. And it's also in the voluntary labels. If you try to do the same thing in the voluntary label where they don't have to do it, nobody's going to want to put it on if they like, Forget you only get the it. one out of five. I was actually employed to, I designed these type of labels or these data systems in my job. And I was doing one for the fashion industry. They wanted a label and I was trying to, I was clearly explaining. I said, you can do the eco sort of label one, which I don't recommend. 
or we can do the type of disclosure model where we put everyone on a scale and if they get a one out of five, they get a one out of five. And I was just sitting there like as a designer with the colors, with the icons, it was voluntary. So I could sort of do whatever you want. How do we give people only a one out of five, give them the, the bad t-shirt score, but make it not that bad that they are not going to want to put it on? And so, yeah, that was like, I spent several days in that exact problem trying to figure out how you design something. I'm not actually sure what happened with it. I did my designs, I sent it to them, and I'm not sure where it's at right now. For real estate labels, we've proposed that you don't just implement a labeling policy. Hand in hand with that, you have to roll out programs that help people with these low scores and that help people pay for the homes, you know, if they're increasing in price because they're green. It's a complex problem. It's not just a labeling solution. There's other things that have to go along with it. And with the label, just so people understand what we're talking about, the label, when you can compare all the different buildings to each other, it was like a slider, like a ruler. Imagine you're holding a ruler up against the house and it gets a score from one to 10. So if it's a two out of 10, the slider will be like on a two out of 10 on the ruler. If it's a 10 out of 10, you can have that kind of visual display or you can just show two out of 10 the way you would write it down as a fraction. And for understand, the slider worked the best. But what I'm getting to is that you can also use this traffic light system, which is one of my favorite things to design. If I ever have a client, I always go like straight into basically color grading the data. And you also talk about the sort of staircase approach, but you didn't apply any color to your scale. Why did you not apply color? I would never design anything without color because basically I'm just a color fanatic. Like everything is like rainbows and colors. And I'm like, how can you display data without putting it into a rainbow format? (laughs) Is it also that a color grade is more of a value judgment? Like when you have it, like your slider ruler was just sort of a shade of green from like light green to like darker green. When we put red and orange, are we being a bit too judgy by being like, ooh, like your house is like in the red zone? Is that why? Or is it because it would perhaps interfere with the results and you would perhaps study color or traffic light system differently to the way you've assessed it? That's a great question. And I know the traffic light color scheme has evidence behind it as being useful. Our North Star for this project and for all the projects we do is realism and real world applicability. And what we did is we borrowed an existing scale. The score was the home energy score, which is created by the U.S. Department of Energy. It's We used it because it's a very popular scoring system that's already applied to hundreds of homes around the country. And we just stuck with what they designed. I'm not privy to the ins and outs of how they designed it, but I think you're right on the money. They wanted to avoid the negative judgmental part of getting a one or a low score so it goes, if you can see, you can see in the paper when you, for the listeners that download it, it goes from gray to green. Green seems good. Gray seems neutral. And we're happy to see that despite the lack of color, we found statistically significant results. That's how I think that that all came about. So I wonder if you did add color to that scale, which would have inevitably ended up in a traffic light type of system, how that would have affected the results if you added that as another layer of analysis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, We could also add like words. Actually, I think in this case, we did add some words that were like efficient and inefficient and average. But you could add much more strong language if you wanted to and be more explicit about how bad it is when you're in the negative. I think that it would have stronger effects. Actually, how can I say this? I I think it would have stronger effects in two ways. One, you'd have more people rejecting 
the outcome, saying, this doesn't apply to my house, or this is totally unfair, I don't think this is correct. And you'd have more people probably acting on the information because it's a more powerful motivator of behavior. I should say, in the last year, we published another report on rental. I don't know if you want to get into this, but we did a similar study, but on rental listings. And in this one, our reviewers said, look, guys, you can't put this judgment wording underneath efficient, inefficient, average. And so we further, because that's not feasible, it would never be implemented. And so we further downplayed the negative aspects in a way that's more palatable to real life. And the results were a little bit weaker. I don't think, I don't know how much is attributable to that because it was just one condition, but the point is it's very hard to get these things done in reality and increasing negative feelings is a very hard sell. Yeah, so it seems like that the sell is that you have to get all of the powers that be to just be able to, almost like a pain tolerance threshold, to tolerate that 1% of people will just like freak out getting their like red negative listing and we just have to be okay with that. People freak out getting parking fines. They get freak out being arrested. There are a lot of things that the government does that people already freak out about and the government has to tolerate that in order to make everything uh, work. We get pulled over by police for speeding, all sorts of stuff. Having all these institutions be like, it's okay if 1% of people are really, really upset, like we can handle it for the sake of achieving our goal. It should do me wonder, though, with these labels that show all the different houses on a scale of 1 to 10, do you think, I couldn't quite make it out from reading the paper, was it more of a, a carrot or a, a stick approach? Were the people more like avoiding the negative, the, the lower listings, like, oh, we don't want a two or a three, let's just put them in the trash mentally and just go over here? Or was it more like, oh, let's go over here and look at the high ones? And that sense of like, we definitely want to avoid being below average and we, or we want to like go towards being above average. Does that make sense? Or can you even figure that out oh, yeah. from the paper? Very good question. Oh, yeah. That was something that I was curious about myself right away because homes that on the lower end, are they could be low-income homeowners. And we did not want to just, if people just avoid those homes, then we would be a little bit concerned that penalizes people more than it rewards them. What we found was that both things happen. People move toward more efficient listings and they move away from less efficient listings. A little bit more away from little less efficient listings, but more or less equal. Like I said, it's important to roll these out with programs that help people get low scores. This is the best way to make that low, that mandatory la labeling policy palatable. So to say, okay, you got a low score, but because of that, we're offering you extra money to upgrade this, that, and the other thing. And we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and it got me thinking of a sort of a next layer of this, perhaps outside the context of the study itself, which is just seeing like sort of how people respond to these labels. But really the ultimate purpose of the label, like the purpose of the label is not necessarily to get people through consumer demand to select more energy efficient houses versus not houses, like just this kind of like market mechanism. And I don't think through looking at a lot of different environmental labeling sort of stuff over the years, that's necessarily like the the sort of causal mechanism that you necessarily want to push on the most. I think the purpose of having these listings is more to encourage the homeowners to engage in the sort of activities that are going to change their, so leading up to 
selling their house and also when they've just gotten the house, you don't necessarily want them to just be like, oh, I'll just choose this house instead of that house. What you want is, oh my God, my house has gotten only like a two out of 10 and we're about to sell it. So we really need to do this big thing, big thing, big thing, spend $10,000. Is that the kind of the way you see the ultimate purpose of it? Superficially, it looks like it's like a consumer preference thing, but you're really trying to set up a tool that's going to be like, here's your score. Now book an energy efficiency consultancy and fix all this stuff up now. Yeah, you got it. Bang on. We're looking for transformative change here. And if we are able to motivate consumer behavior change, then ultimately that will motivate the sellers to change. When right now people are very, I mean, if you want to get your home ready to sell, you look at the cheapest ways to make, increase the value. You paint it. You maybe buy granite countertops or stainless steel appliances or something like that. Maybe get a shed or something. I don't remember. There's a, somewhere there's a list of what the most effective, cost-effective things are. We want to get on that list. Yeah. We want to say, rather than buying granite countertops, we're going to get incentivize people to like show that their, your home value increases more when you insulate your attic or when you replace your HVAC with something that's more efficient. So this particular work is for those home sellers. And hopefully, if we can make this market correction, I guess you might call it if you're an economist, then home sellers will start looking at those efficiency upgrades as opportunities. And we also did this later on, like I was last year, with renters. Now, this is important because there's a split incentive problem for renters where the renters get the benefit of energy efficiency, but they aren't the ones that would buy lasting upgrades in the home. And the landlord would be the one that buys the up lasting upgrades, but does not get the benefits of the energy efficiency. So what if we target landlords that are just trying to find new renters? They're in that changeover period. Now, if, they, if we can demonstrate that renters value energy efficiency, then landlords might say, I might be able to make more for my rental if I upgrade the attic insulation or something like that. Maybe I'll do that in order to increase the value of my rental. And so we're kind of getting away of us for a split incentive problem there. Of course, create other problems, which is like if the affordable housing no longer, is longer, no longer affordable, then renters have to look for cheaper options. But there's other ways to address that problem with other programs and policies. Meanwhile, we're increasing, like you mentioned, the very important problem we're attacking is existing buildings and getting retrofits done on existing buildings. Yeah, I think it's a, a really important distinction to make that a lot of people maybe haven't really perhaps thought through yet or can sort of jump to conclusions thinking that affecting consumer demand is a way to create change. I remember for the first 10 years of my career, I thought consumer demand was everything. If you could just get people to just choose the green option, you could just change everything that way. And the deeper I got into it, I realized that there's some very you know strong limitations to that way of thinking. And I think with any kind of product, like assuming that a house is a product or a t-shirt is a product or a, a bed or anything is a product, that you may have a rating for that product. You may have a mandatory disclosure, but the it's the people c consuming is not where you want to push on the, the sort of call to action. You really want to push on the call to action of the, the owners or the manufacturers of that product. And in a way, I suppose a homeowner is like a, a manufacturer. I remember when I was working on this for the fashion, the fashion, what are they called? Fashion, sustainable apparel organization, association, that I was sort of, they already knew it themselves as well, that it wasn't going to be that people are going to go for this white t-shirt over that white t-shirt. I'm saying, I think if you've got Levi's and Nike and Target and all of these different companies with all of their different executives and all of their different 
people who manage that supply chain, they're the people that this is ultimately going to push on because they're going to be naturally competitive, naturally sort of comparing with each other. And whether the consumer preferences it or not, I don't think it really makes any difference at all that they are themselves going to want to improve. But there's one thing that I find I am coming up with a lot in my my work, it sort of comes up in this paper, is that do you show these labels? It's about units. You can show energy in terms of money. You can show it in terms of carbon emissions. Are we all ultimately here for carbon emissions? I mean, I am. A lot of people in energy are, although it's got there's a lot of facets to it. Or kilowatt hours. You've got these three different metrics to to work with. You can put all of them side by side. You can just choose one. You can choose two. What have you found in terms of which one of these three different metrics to communicate energy? Yeah. That's a tough one. Generally, people do not understand what a kilowatt hour is. And the relationship between energy and greenhouse gas emissions is complex. And I think that most people don't understand that they're not exactly the same. Another thing people don't exactly understand is that their energy bill is affected by the energy efficiency of their home, but not only by the... If you look at the energy score and the energy bill, those are not going to necessarily be entirely correlated. The energy bill is just, is not, you can't look at the energy bill and just necessarily assume you know how efficient the building is. That said, an energy bill has information that is really important to people. How much money am I spending every month? And that's what the ultimate calculation is for everybody. What does it boil down to? Like, how do I change kilowatt hours or energy efficiency score into how much I'm going to pay? We thought when we launched this experiment, we did five different labels, I think it was in this one. And we thought, okay, people are really going to care about how much money they're spending. So when we show them the bill in terms of how much money they're going to be saving or spending, that's going to be the most effective. When we show the energy score, maybe it's less applicable, so maybe it's less effective. And in actual fact, we found that, yes, people care about how much money they're spending and it's effective, but the energy score was able to be even more effective than the dollar amount, which we surprised about. And there, our explanation, and this was borne out somewhat in the subsequent rental listings experiment as well, was that a dollar amount out of context is not as effective as a dollar amount in context, where you see what the maximum minimum is. The energy score we only showed in context with like a maximum possible score or a continuum of possible scores. The energy score was actually pretty effective. We also found energy score, you don't need to be an expert to understand what that means. The home energy score probably tells you how much energy your home uses. It's not like a complicated, like a lead reading might doesn't intuitively explain what it is. So all those factors together made us, you know, taught us something surprising, which was that a metric that may not be directly relevant to people can still be important and effective. But did you think it was also another way to potentially explain it is that, which is one of my other guests explained when she studied, she tested asking people to save energy with a monetary explanation versus a carbon emissions explanation. And what she said is that we have these two types of minds, like we have our social altruistic do the right thing mind, and then we have our economically rationalist mind. And this also is related to that, I mean, you'd probably know it, that study, I think it's titled A Fine is a Price. It's like one of those famous ones people talk about where if you charge when the the daycare has it be like there's no charge when you pick up the kids late 
then everybody picks up, tries to pick up their kids on time because they want to be a good person. But then as soon as you add a, a fee of like $10 or whatever, then everybody starts being really late because I can just pay $10 because they've moved into their economically rationalist mind out of their sort of good person mind. Do you think that if showing the energy rating does that, like it sets that, what do you call it, the anchoring heuristic around, like let's be in our good person, do the right thing mind? Whereas when you use the money, it puts us into our economically rationalist mind and then we're just, it's just like a, a calculation. It doesn't have any bigger social meaning to it. That is a really interesting way of putting it. That's one possible explanation. My guess is that it's pretty, so I think that folks are really just looking out for themselves in one way or another. And they're just, they, if they see the energy score, they think it's a bigger deal than if they see uh, the price out of context. But I do think that that's a good point to make that there's these two minds and there's two different types of appeals you can make. You can make the appeal to somebody's altruism and good moral behavior and just trying to be a good person, or you can make this sort of hedonistic argument. I don't know if hedonism is the right term there, but rational economic argument. I will say that I think that people in the environmental world think that the environment matters to people much more than it does. Yeah, I think that, I'm like, like that. I'm like, CO2, appeal, all environment, and then <laughs> everybody will care. In another experiment that, I don't know if you've read it, but message framing for home energy upgrades, we did an experiment where we said, same hypothetical situation, a home energy assessor comes to your house and recommends all these upgrades, how likely are you to do them? If we give people the environmental argument, oh, this is great for the environment, it reduces uh, emissions, it's help sustainability, et cetera. That was better than uh, no arguments at all, but not statistically significantly better. However, three arguments were better. The health argument, it makes your home healthier, reduces asthma, et cetera. Uh, the comfort argument makes your house more comfortable, less thermal differences around different rooms and such. Uh, and the financial argument, it's going to save you money. And when I tell that to people in the energy efficiency world, they're like, duh, we never talk about the environment. When I tell this to people in my environmental sustainability mm. world, they're like, really? <laughs> it's different insights for different people. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. But it's also like a, an important concept, though, because in this other woman who I, I just mentioned who did this study on money versus CO2, she found that the, and it was also mentioned in your study as well, that the people who vote Democrat were, in your study, it said the people who vote Democrat were more interested in taking on the energy efficiency upgrades. And in her study... It was the people who voted Democrat were much more, they would save more energy if their prompt was a carbon emissions-based prompt. So what she said is that the financial prompt worked for everybody, but if you're a Republican, the CO2 message just did not work at all. If you voted Democrat, then you got a really big boost from the carbon emissions. So it says that we really need to tailor the messages for the different types of markets. That's what I get out of it. And if you've got a super green, oh, like yeah. if you're in Berkeley, use the environmental message. <laughs> Everybody's there. And if you're just looking for something for blanket California, where it's mostly Democrat, but you've also got a bit of a mix. The Central Valley is pretty right wing. And then you've got San Francisco, which would be, I think, very wealthy communities, very carbon emissions orientated. The environmental message might work there as well. Is that sort of what you get out of it? More like tailoring the message to different communities? Oh, yeah. I feel like a broken record with this. The most important thing you can do is listen. And different people have different motivations, especially when it comes to your to home energy upgrades. If somebody is doing a home energy assessment, it's a rare opportunity to actually meet with the homeowners, to actually talk with them. This is something that doesn't happen very often 
in behavior change research in many programs at all. And so I can tell you all the stats about how people in this region tend to be motivated by a health message, people in this region more by environmental message, people in this age income bracket or whatever. The most important thing you can do is listen when you first get there and say, what will work for this person? And failing that, what will generally work for this group of people in this demographic? And you do your best to target the messages. It's just, it's marketing 101. But a lot of people who design programs and policies don't think that way. And it's something I just try to hammer home whenever I can. And just to one other thing on the the data conversation about which type of units to show things in. This is one of my favorite little things to flag because... One thing that happens in my own design work is engineers come to me with saying, Katie, I've got this dashboard or this thing and it's got like, it's like clustered with charts. There's all these like numbers everywhere. And we're like, we know it's not quite right. We know it's it's really stuffed and it's clustered. What's the word? Um, crowded. And we just can't, we know it doesn't look right, but we can't make it look good. Can you please make it look nice? And then I say, yes, I will. I will make it look nice. But this thing comes up of cognitive load. And I saw it in your study. I've got it here. I don't know if you can see on my on my thing. I found that this chart, the one that worked the best, I think this is for the home sales when people are predicting what they'll buy, is that the highest one is actually the energy rating, not the financial one. Amazing result. Is it 11%? But look what happens when you put two numbers together. When you pollute your one elegant, effective number with another number, was it money, the amount of money they save? When you put the two things together, then it basically works just as not as well as the other scores. So you basically ruin the effect. As soon as you put another number in, you ruin the effect. Have you come up against that as well, the issue of cognitive load and showing people like two numbers? I've seen this in multiple other studies as well. I wish I could collect them, but I can't remember where I've seen them now. Like multiple other environmental studies, like when you put money and carbon emissions together on the one call to action cancels nothing when you when you speak to economists the classical econ- economic theory is if people are making the right decisions because they don't have enough information so we need to give them more information they will make the right decision psychologists will immediately roll their eyes like no you need the right one piece of you need to make it as clear and simple and reduce cognitive load in order to make the right decision i love your explanation of cognitive load and polluting the correct the best metric. We did not expect that. I was like, all right, we put this number with this number, we'll get double the effect. You know, now they have two more, they have two reasons. Well, what an actual fact is happening is people were just, they only needed the one good one. They didn't need the other one that was bad. And in fact, it didn't add it, it subtracted. So um, yeah, cognitive load is an issue. It's a real thing that I think um, is underestimated by non-psychologists. I will never design anything with more than like one number. It's only allowed to have one number. It's never ever going to have two numbers. But you're right about that. It's not intuitive. Like you would assume, like I didn't get to this just intuitively, like it just sort of happened through trial and error and reading these papers, that you would think that giving people more information would help them to a decision. But it just has the the opposite effect. I think it's called the crowd out effect. Is that right? Have you heard of the crowd out effect? I have heard that term. I have not used that term, but that sounds about right. And another way that this comes about is, and I won't just like slam economists, but I've done an experiment, for example, for a committee came up with a label. They're like, this has all the information we want to put in the in the label because we came up with it as a committee. And But they had the wherewithal of saying, hey, Ruben, do you think you can 
test to make sure that consumers actually understand the label the way we think they do. And of course, they were so confusing and there was so much information that was useless to people that they didn't understand. And, you know, having all the information there doesn't necessarily mean that people will respond to all the information. They look for their one piece of information that is most important to them. And they see if that product will reflect their values through that one piece of information. Yeah, there's this crazy bias. In addition to the bias you mentioned with the environmental community, as we just assume everyone's like us and is going to be just as environmentally sensitive to, to messages. But this bias, and it happens with almost every single one of my clients. I don't know if I've had a client yet. I probably have had one or two that don't have it. But because we're sort of come from this scientific background, there's this very strong mental training to be scientifically verifiable and scientifically accurate. And sustainability naturally has all these kind of tentacles of like water and air pollution and VOCs and embodied whatever and social. And so they come and we, it has to show these 10 or 15 different things. And we have to work on all these things simultaneously and we have to show them because if we don't do it, it won't be scientifically accurate. It won't be scientifically verifiable. And you're just like, it doesn't need to be. It can be in your like report and your spreadsheet that you can look at with all your environmental scientist friends. But if your job is to get somebody who's like a non-scientist in a split second to make a decision, just choose one. And the psychological stickiness, the psychological resistance is massive. Like I think to get a scientist to say, no, we will only just look at one metric. We will not look at all the metrics. Is like really hard, like totally goes against the grain for them. There's even another example. I think it was like the Boston Water Supply Authority did this, where they did some sort of like disclosure thing about like water quality. And they put like a letter out to all the residents. I think they put 150 different water indicators because water is really complex. So if you're like a water scientist, you're like, (laughs) oh, we have, I don't even know what all these things are. There's just like so many different types of pollutants and chemicals and algae blooms and things that get in water. Oh, if we're going to send a report out, it must have like all, we can't leave any (laughs) out. But it was considered, it's actually written in the book, the disclosure book as a failure, as a disclosure failure. So all these people, these scientists, they get together, they put all this work into it, they spend all this money sending out these letters, and then it gets written up as the case study of like a disclosure <laughs> failure because they have to put all of this stuff and they have to like muddy, muddy it up with all this data. And But anyway, yeah, I just no cognitive load one, one number at a time. But this chart of yours here that I've got, this is about the potential sale price. It says that you can, if you just show the energy, not the money, So the energy comes up at 11%. The energy slider comes up at 11%. Just cost, which I think it's always fascinating to show how non-motivating cost is. Everyone assumes that it's all about money all the time, but it's really fascinating to look at this one, how cost is like less than half. If this translates into the real world, say if I've got a house that's like a million dollars, which is about as, which will get you a shack here in Silicon Valley. I've got my million dollar shack here in Silicon Valley. If I just show how much it costs then I'll get 5% on that, what's that, $50,000, right, on that. Now, if I show it as energy, I'll get like $110,000. So that's like a difference of like 60 grand just by the way the data is disclosed and not squishing the two numbers together. This is potentially like a really big financial incentive to disclose this information for the, the sale of properties, right? Okay, so a couple of comments on that. First, I hesitate to... So you've interpreted that correctly. People in our study were willing to spend 11% more on the purchase price of the home 
when we showed them the home energy score along the continuum. And they were only willing to spend is it 4% more when they were shown the home energy, the energy efficiency in terms of bills without context. First of all, I think it's more about, it's not so much about energy score as it is about the context information. We later did a study with renters and we found that we can make money matter to people if we put the money along a continuum as opposed to just putting it as a dollar amount. Wasn't the most important, but it was still more important. That's one thing. Score is really great. It worked great in our experiment, but I think it was because it had the score and what it could be out of. Second of all, I think that I try to warn people off of using that 11% number in real world terms, just because people tend to, in these hypothetical experiments online, inflate the amount they're willing to spend on things a little bit. Yes, 11%, but in reality, it might be, I don't know what the real, you deflate that slightly. I think that a study of, for example, homes that received green rating versus not green rating showed a, I want to say, 3 to 5% increase in sale price. So depending on how you look at it, it could be more or less. But yes, the good news is that showing the home energy score can be super effective and money isn't everything. And that money can be a, an effective motivator, but it's not everything. I talk about this all the time with, with policymakers. They're, they're like, okay. The only thing we need to get people to act in a pro-environmental way is make the thing cheaper, make the other thing illegal, but a big problem solved. There's so many other motivators that, that are also important, making something illegal. Like, how many people have not have broken the speed limit? That It's illegal to speed, but everybody drives above the speed limit sometimes. Making things less expensive. Many of us will sort our, painstakingly sort all our recyclables and compost into like seven different bins without getting paid a cent to do it just because we think it's the right thing to do. There's so many reasons that people act in ways that are good or bad for the environment that I think looking at it in terms of just money or just laws is just too simplistic. Yeah, totally. And what my sense is too, that it is the most expensive way to do it. If the only tool you are using to persuade the person is that they're going to go to jail or it's money, money is one of our, is really actually one of our weakest motivators. When we think about the effort we put into our children, the effort we do to get through college and become educated, when people do crazy things, like I've got a little slideshow like in my presentation where I show this slide of all these people that have done really crazy stuff through history. Like they're kind of outliers, like the guy who ran the first minute mile. There was a lady in the 1900s who went over Niagara Falls in like a barrel and she survived. And she was like in her 60s. She was, I'm just going to get in a barrel and just go over Niagara Falls, see if I survive. There was the guy that jumped out of the, he did a parachuting from a spacecraft. Did you see that guy? It was like a Red Bull thing. No, that's crazy. They got some <laughs> thing like way up high, like out of the atmosphere. And then he did this, this jump and went obviously a very oh, long way. But people like are enormously motivated to do all sorts of things. And money is just sort of almost like just sort of a limitation that we all live with, that we can't do all the things that we would want to do. So choosing it as the one thing that motivates people is incredibly reductive. And if you have to think about everything in terms of how much would I pay, have to pay every single homeowner to do the energy efficiency thing. Cool. I'll pay you $100,000 and then you can do all the stuff, right? That's going to be a very expensive environmental campaign to roll out. But if you can use these non-financial motivators in people, these desires to be a good person, to maybe outperform other people, to imitate other people, then you can make sort of get more bang for your buck. Like you can spread something out that's going to really stick around like 
lots and lots of lots of people more more easily. Do you think that's a kind of a reasonable way to think about it that you ultimately like get more bang for your buck using psychological hooks rather than money is the only thing that we have? Okay, so I caution people towards thinking that behavioral science is the one and only solution. Financial motivators are a huge motivator, very important to think about. But yes, if you may not convince everybody, you might only convince a small percentage. But if you can convince a small percentage with no money at all, why not? It would be foolish to not think about behavioral science when we're rolling out these kinds of policies. Just the other day, I read a paper by my colleague, Kim Wolski, who uh, found that when people are given a $1 gift for participating in a low-income energy or solar program, they're much more likely to then refer their friends. When Whereas like a $1 gift is like pretty inexpensive compared to their other efforts that they were trying to do. Yeah, there's, there's just like lots of examples in which money isn't the only motivator. It's an important motivator, but it's not the only one. We actually have an energy efficiency world. We have another problem, which is that program designers think that the only thing that motivates people is saving money. And in fact, that is an important motivator for homeowners. But what other products in the world are like sold because they'll save you money? Like very, very few things. And what actually is motivating is telling people about the benefits. This is going to make your home a healthier place. This is going to make your home a more comfortable place. If you have children, you don't want them to get asthma. This might be something to think about. And people are willing to spend more on their homes when they get those kind of messages. Oh, that's the framing, right? That's the second study that you sent me about. Is that what, does that, under the banner of framing? That's right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something we think about all the time. And, and we have an issue. This is a larger scale issue, but utility programs must be cost effective. I'm not an expert in the regulatory systems in the US, but to boil it down, generally utilities can't run programs unless for homeowners unless they can show that they're cost effective. And when cost effectiveness just means dollars spent and dollars saved, you're very limited because a lot of home energy upgrades that are deep and important pay themselves off over a long period, but they have all these ancillary benefits that are externalized, like the fact that you're so much more comfortable now, the fact that you're like, I don't know how much you want to value, but like your home looks better or that you'll be healthier. These are things that are factored out of the equation and they cannot be accounted for. And so we need to think about ways to make them more accounted. Yeah, so that they can influence change. And so with the framing, is there only, can you only frame things as either, what's it called, loss framing or benefit framing? Or are there more frames? Okay, well, that's a deep question. I think that there's a lot more frames than that, but I guess maybe you could interpret things as loss or gain. Let me see. Some of the frames that we found effective were like small but significant effect of telling somebody that their home energy upgrades will pay off, not in 10 years from today, but in July of 2034. When you give a more concrete date, that's a more effective, slightly more persuasive than telling people it's going to be 10 years from today. Strangely, when we tried to be even more concrete, it'll be like, Monday, July 31st on 2034. <laughs> that was like less effective. I guess people thought that's crazy. Nobody can predict it to that level of certainty. But so that's one of the things we looked at. We looked at the importance of images and how images are used, infrared camera images, when you not just show the image, but also show exactly what the infrared camera image is looking at with great explanations. You're framing that image in a much better way that makes it more powerful and effective. Use the anchoring heuristics to frame messages. This is the last one I'm going to mention, but you say 
this what the cost of this home energy upgrade instead of saying like it's just three thousand two hundred dollars do you want to do it you say look you're spending six thousand three hundred dollars on replacing your walls and doors in the same location why not spend three thousand two hundred dollars more on also getting this hvac upgrade that's more effective than just saying would you want to pay three thousand two hundred dollars for an hvac upgrade because you're the frame tells you what it could be and what it is in comparison to other things. Or it was this price and now it's gone down to this price. That's another way of using anchoring heuristic to change people's perceptions. Mm-hmm. So the anchoring and the framing go message. together. You hear that a lot in sales. Start with like, oh, here's the, the $50,000 one. And you, it's almost fake. Like it's not even planned for. But then we're only charging $10,000 for it or For whatever. you, exactly. Yeah. But then it can be, it doesn't have my, to be money. My, it could be all sorts of things. It could be the frame, could be health. It's like what you... Like the mental landscape, you like trigger people to start down in their path of thinking. Yeah. My favorite example of that is from Cialdini's Influ- book, Influence, which I don't know if you read, but it's like the famous one about persuasion. And he talks about how this, in this case, the anchoring heuristic really did its job where this jewelry store owner had these like really nice pieces of jewelry that were very reasonably priced, but they just were not selling. And the owner... When they left, they said, okay, everything in this, to the manager, he left a note, everything in this case should be half price. Came back, all the jewelry was sold. It's a great job. What did ha- you do? They, I just followed your instructions. I put everything in the, in the case to double the price and because uh, they misread the, the note. And of course, what happened was people were using a heuristic that the price equaled the quality. And they assumed that quality was better when the price was higher. And using these different message framing strategies can really be powerful and effective sometimes in ways you don't know. And that's why it's important to test them. Mm. Yeah. And what I find just so fascinating about the behavioral science approach, especially by going through the academic papers and seeing such a level of nuance that you would just never, ever pick up on if you were just working as a sustainability manager, is how sensitive some of these effects are to very small say, potential like errors in the way something could be delivered. If you put the two numbers together, you can kill off the effect or you can halve the effect. Or just the way a sentence is written, it can be the difference between a whole environmental campaign, a whole community engagement campaign having no effect, nothing, or having it maybe get 17% change or 30% change. And when I see these big changes, I'm just like, oh my God, like people need to know their stuff and really start getting into the nuance of how subtle these psychological differences are. Because I mean, my hunch is that all of the sustainability and climate managers out there sort of by accident, just making a lot of errors in the way that they're psychologically communicating to their populations, including utilities, NGOs, the whole lot. And just to really realize that any time you put out a newsletter, you put out a flyer, you put out a billboard, a campaign, anything that you're putting out, you could very likely be making a psychological mistake that could be completely wiping out the effect of this. And if you just understood the theory like a little bit more, you could have a really big effect, but you don't know unless you like study this stuff. Do you find that just also fascinating about this, how like tenuous these psychological kind of levers are in people? Yeah, people are making these unwittingly making these mistakes all the time. And I think that you the last point you made there was that theory can be important. I'm constantly making that argument. Everybody I, I hear from is like, oh, in your, in your report, don't bother mentioning any theory. Nobody cares about that. They just want the results. Well, in actual fact, people love seeing the theory because they explains what they're, explains things in a way that shows that you there's a reason behind what you're saying. 
And I think that theories can be very important. And, and yes, these small differences can make a huge change in the behavior that people make. And that's why in my organization, I'm, I say, any survey you're going to send out, please let me look at it before you send it. I'd be surprised at how many non-scientists are putting out surveys. But the way you ask a question determines what the answer is going to be. The number of answer options you give determines the answers you're going to get. And these things, you don't notice them until you actually work on them. Yeah, that's why I love doing it. That's really why like, I do this podcast, because I can sort of get a sense of it by reading like Cialdini's book or those like popular behavioral science books. And I get a sense of just by reading a paper. But when I really talk to people, it really sort of crystallizes what these theories are and how they affect people in the real world. So you can go and work on a campaign or a label and just when you understand like the theories, you're not just going about it randomly like, oh, like, oh, let's just try to like affect some people and I've just got some fonts and some colors and I'll just move them all around and just hope (laughs) it'll get to people. It's like graphic design. Like I know graphic design certain rules of a font has to be like this, colors match like this. And when things have to line up like this and white space to dark space has to be like this, like I mean, about 15 years ago, I just learned like a bunch of like basic graphic design rules, like nothing that complicated. And suddenly I went from making things that just look like clustered garbage to being able to make just really nice professional looking design stuff. You just learn a few basic rules and you follow the rules and then it works. And then people say, oh, look, you're a great designer. And you're like, no, you could do it. It's just because it was lined up and it was just a basic, (laughs) it had a ratio, like anybody could do this. So I think, yeah, with sustainability, Um, the psychology is like that. Like just once you know the rules, you get a sense of it, you can deploy it in a way that will work at least like a little bit. At least it won't completely fail like a lot of stuff does. I do want to say that it's important to test too. A lot of people, even myself, I thought that the label with two metrics was going to be better than the label with one metric. It's very important to test rather than simply assume and put something out there. Every context is different. Every audience is different. You don't know how everything's going to play out in the end until you test it. Yeah, and you have to know what hypothesis you're testing, right? People might not Mm -hmm. even know what are you actually testing. If you really get that sense of causality and hypothesis, you can actually know what you're testing. Unless you've gone through those sort of theoretical backgrounds, you may not know. That's another thing that I think is really important and underestimated is the importance of evaluation. And understanding how to do a good evaluation where you're going beyond just outputs to outcomes. You're going beyond just associations to causality. And I think that it's hard for non-scientists to really understand the subtleties of how a different evaluation decision really affects your certainty about the effect of your, your campaign or your intervention. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, having studied engineering we don't get anywhere near that, like not even a little bit. It's like calculus textbook, concrete textbook, ecology textbook, like not even close, not even a toe in the water. And, And, you know, that might be fine. No, sorry, go on. That might be fine if you're dealing with physics and like building a bridge or a, a building or a structure that you might not need to evaluate how it works in the real world to know that it's going to work in the real world. Because the laws of physics and the properties of all these construction materials are likely to be pretty predictable. When you deal with humans, you really do need to do these kinds of evaluations. And the issue becomes when engineers take the job of making things that humans interact with away from the social scientists and say, don't worry, we got this. Because they they weren't trained in that. And I feel like you're going to miss something. 
so that perhaps answers my closing, one of my closing questions, which is like, what is your advice to these sustainability teams and these climate community engagement groups of people? They're sitting around in their meetings, they're trying to figure out how to spend the budget, how to get people to do the thing. If there was a gold standard or a core bit of advice, what would it be? Yeah. So I think that what behavioral science brings to the table is a scientific approach and good evaluation. It might be controversial to some people who are in the behavioral science field because they'll say, no, we're really good at designing messages. Our strength is that we have theory-driven messages that change behavior. And just since I've been out of academia, or partly in academia, I've noticed that actually marketing firms and advertising agencies, they're really good at making messages. They can do really great messages that change behavior. The same things that I would probably come up with without having years of training and whatnot. What the behavioral sciences bring to the table is evaluation. And I don't think this should be underestimated. You want to know if your campaign has really worked in a really genuine way that you can say with pretty good confidence it has worked. And so if I was to say something to, to folks outside academia about using this work, it's make sure you have an evaluation plan. Make sure you're thinking about that evaluation plan as you're rolling out your product or your service, not as an afterthought afterwards. Just while you're doing it, bring somebody on board who's an expert in behavioral science or evaluation to, to advise you on how to evaluate the thing that you're rolling out while you're doing it. That's my best piece of advice. Yeah, and you can test it. Like if you understand the variations or the psychological variations you're making to your campaign or program, then you can look at how they are different. Like you've got multiple different variations of this energy label based on different theories. And then you can see which one works the best to get that granularity and then come back and seeing how it's being applied to different demographics. So then you can take the best one and then iterate, do it again. And I'll tell you what, something really heartbreaking that I come on that comes up a lot because I'm often talking about like how to apply this stuff in the practical world to sustainability managers. They say, it's the most heartbreaking sentence. They say, Katie, we tried that and it didn't work. And I'm just like stabbed in the heart. And I'm like, and then they show me what they've done. And it's some garbled garbage flyer with badly designed, with doesn't even have any relationship to what I'm even talking about. And I'm just like, oh my God. So people have tried doing it a really bad way. They've gotten some someone's 12-year-old cousin to maybe graphic design it and then spent all this money on a like what outreach or whatever. And I'm thinking, this is what's happening. Like this, doing it really, really badly, saying it doesn't work and then just reaching a brick wall. I'm like, that's got to end. Nobody does that in Silicon Valley. Nobody's like, oh, we tried to build like an amazing like rocket prototype and it just didn't work. It's just, it doesn't happen here. We iterate and iterate, problem solve, problem solve. And I'd, yeah, I'd really like mm -hmm. that to be, that mm -hmm. same consciousness be applied to this behavioral science approach in the environmental world. Agreed. Agreed. And what's coming up for you in the future? What are you excited to keep researching? Yeah, thanks for asking. We're right in the middle right now of a project that we're going we're gonna to launch. The, it's sort of an online survey-based experiment on how to message comprehensive home energy retrofits. So building on some of the work I sent to you, this is not just how to get people to upgrade, but how to get people to do comprehensive upgrades, which is really more urgently needed now. And at least in the US, we have a whole tranche of funding coming down the pike that will help homeowners with this. And we're just trying to maximize that new program money. We're also going to be doing similarly a project that's not an experiment, but rather a fact-finding mission on consumer attitudes towards electrification, switching from gas, oil, or propane to electricity. 
which is a very important and transformative change that needs to happen in order to get us to a clean energy future. And if homeowners are opposed to it, don't like the idea or don't know about it, that's important to know because then we can properly design campaigns that target people in the right way with the right message. Yeah, electrification is all the rage here in California, especially in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And just to to finish up, oh, sorry, anything you wanted to add? I would just say electrification, I'm sorry to get you go down tangent here. Electrification is so important. But here at ACEEE, we like to remind folks that beneficial, efficient electrification is the way to go. Very often, if you're trying to, if you just switch from gas to electricity, some people, their bills are going to go up because electricity is more expensive. It's very hard to market that. If you pair it with energy efficiency upgrades, then you can get a smaller HVAC, for example, and you can save money, offset it, plus your home is healthier and more comfortable. Efficiency paired with electrification is really the way to go. Simply electrifying without doing anything else is not going to get you where you need to be. Mm -hmm. And everybody's grid is different with the carbon intensity of like, and different different times of day. Ultimately, we can't lose sight of the fact that we just need to use less energy. Putting a solar panel on your roof is helpful, but using less energy is a cheaper way to save, to get everything done that you need to do with electricity. Same thing with electrification. It's great. It's very important. But we also need to just use less energy. And energy efficiency is really helpful for that. Mm. And how would you like to see the field of environmental behavioral science? If you could look 100 years in the future and everything had gone in this super positive, amazing direction, how would you imagine that to be? Wow. Well, I think there should be a behavioral scientist on staff for pretty much any socially conscious movement whether it's in government or in nonprofits or in advocacy groups or whatnot. I don't, I'm not really thrilled about the future in which behavioral science is used by all these marketing agencies to get us to buy more stuff we don't need. But I think that a flourishing field will probably have a little bit of everything. But really, I just want to see behavioral science integrated into these programs that are supposed to serve the social good and just aren't maximized. I think that in the future, if everything goes really well, we'd see more representation in the field. And is there anything that you would like to share with the audience before we close up? Any reports, downloads, things that they can find at ACEEE, how to contact you? Right. So I'd love to hear from your listeners. Any questions or thoughts or comments? If you want to partner with me, let me know. You can reach me at the ACEEE website. Just look up behavior. That's spelled the American way with a, without a U. On the ACEEE website, you can find all my reports, including the one on real estate listings. It's the one that's on the ACEEE website. It's even a little bit more comprehensive than the peer-reviewed journal article that you may have seen. You can also see the work on how to talk about home energy upgrades, see a bunch of other research on whether how to best design a home energy assessment report, how to best prepaid energy and whether it's good or bad and how it can change behavior and all kinds of other cool stuff. Okay, awesome. This was wonderful to dive into. One of my favorite topics, which is how to communicate building energy consumption, something I've done a lot of. So thanks for coming on the show, Riven. Katie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. What another amazing conversation. Thank you for listening to the How to Save the World podcast and for your interest and passion in environmental psychology, gamification and behavior design. It's an amazing thing I get to do to interview these fascinating people and draw out this knowledge that's contained in the Journal of Environmental Psychology, the Journal of Environmental Behavior Design and others and extract this knowledge and put it into these conversations that you can so easily absorb. 
If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com. I have a host of free resources that you can download there to learn the kind of measurement-driven behavior and gamification design that I do. And if you want to take a really deep dive into the process I follow to design amazing dashboards and apps and campaigns and concepts that actually drive real humans to take action, you must sign up for my Gamify the Planet program and do the Behaviour Mapping Bootcamp course. You sign up for Gamify the Planet on Patreon. It's $25 a month. It's basically almost free for the amount of value and intellectual and design expertise that's in there. And the real signature course and process that I really want you to learn that's in the Gamify the Planet group is this behavior mapping process. It's 10 steps that start with what I call the God metric, the core environmental metric that you want to change. And then we go through a process that's similar to what they call user story mapping in software design and then we go through nearly 100 different data and gamification and behavioral psychology techniques and see how they all fit together and then come out the other side with a surgically well thought out smooth elegant and evidence driven concept that is going to get the attention first and foremost of the people that you need to reach and then it will use these behavioral psychology hooks in its design to get them to actually do the thing that you want them to do. It's a process, it's a formula, it works, it's all in there. Don't go through your sustainability, climate, environmental journey without doing this behavior mapping bootcamp course. This system that I've laid out is core to everything I do. And it's my mission to get every single person in the world who is trying to influence anyone to save the planet at all to start using this process because it works. And being able to put it all together at such a low cost to the community is through the support and the contribution of my Patreon supporters. If you love this podcast, if you love this knowledge, if you would like to support my work in bringing this knowledge to you, please jump on to patreon.com forward slash katiepatrick and you can make a monthly donation there. I send out Patreon only workshops, templates, podcasts and useful designs that I make that you can download every week for the Patreon community. And money is not the only way to support my work. If you're enjoying this podcast, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and you can leave up to a five-star review. Hit the follow button if you're on Spotify. Follow me on Instagram at katiepatrickhello and take a screen grab of this episode and share it on your Instagram stories and tag me. And you can also just... DM me something that you really loved about the episode. It's truly a wonderfully rewarding experience to hear from you when you send me messages about these lightning bolt moments that you've had from listening to the insights in this podcast. Don't feel shy to reach out and send me a message. This is what this community of environmental psychology designers and activists and professionals and deep, deep sustainability nerds is all about. Thank you for listening. And now let's get back to work making Saving the Planet the greatest game we've ever played.